Okay. There will inevitably be some overlap uh, between our two talks, uh, particularly since we didn't uh, collaborate to make sure that we weren't getting any overlap. Um, but I think that's, uh, that's good, and it'll uh, reinforce certain points from different angles, perhaps. And um, you may have heard me talk on uh, similar subjects before, so there'll probably be some repeated material that you've heard before, but uh, in a slightly different structure, perhaps. We get straight down to brass tacks on who did Jesus think he was, and I'd say I'd put it this way. Jesus saw himself as more than just the mere prophet, that say Islam would say, uh, more than someone simply called to teach or even to embody in his lifestyle a spirituality of love for God, self and neighbor, Jesus' reply to the question about the greatest commandment. Rather, Jesus understood the kingdom of God that was at the center of his message as coming in and through his own ministry in person. Um, as William Lane Craig puts it like this, one of the undisputed facts about Jesus of Nazareth is the centrality of the advent of the kingdom of God to his proclamation. <laughs> Moreover, it's clear that Jesus thought of himself as central to the coming of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Most New Testament critics acknowledge that the historical Jesus acted and spoke with a self-consciousness of divine authority and that furthermore he saw in his own person the coming of the long-awaited kingdom of God and invited people into its fellowship. Um, particularly there, thinking about we could look a lot um, at Jesus' understanding of his own death uh, and the role that that was to play in people's spirituality. Um, look at his teaching about the retasking of the, the Passover meal into the communion meal. Uh, against the background of um, passages from the Old Testament like uh, Isaiah 53. Jesus' gospel, the word simply means good news, was the arrival of a new but long-planned phase in God's relationship with creation, particularly with humans. And this good news centred upon Jesus himself as the divine Son of Man figure, who combined the roles of messianic king that the, the focus of Jewish expectation on the day rested upon, and I've got some references in there that I won't bother reading out, uh, with that of the suffering servant figure of passages like Isaiah 52, 53, and so on. That he saw himself as the, the divinely appointed divine entry point into the spirituality of the kingdom, you know, I, I am the gate, I am the door, and so on. Professor Carsten Peter Theed concludes in his book, Jesus, Man or Myth, there is no room for doubt. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, and God himself. And it's on the basis of that kind of view of Jesus' self-understanding that you end up with uh, the argument um, famously put by C.S. Lewis that uh, Chris has already quoted um, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg or he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Goes back. This is the earliest uh, 
English version of the argument that I found from Professor John Duncan, a Scottish uh, writer of the 18th, 19th century. Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived or he was divine. There's no getting out of this trilemma. Not a dilemma because there's three options instead of two. But as we were saying, I think a a lot of people today, as uh, Peter May was noting, would have this kind of view popularised by, say, Dan Brown's novel, The Da Vinci Code. Uh, This is a short passage from The Da Vinci Code. Um, uh, Professor uh, Teabing here says, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Not the Son of God, asked another character. Right, Teabing said, Jesus' establishment as the Son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, which uh, was a church council of bishops that met in 325 AD. So pre the Council of Nicaea, even Christians just thought of Jesus as this human prophet, good moral teacher kind of figure. Well, as Mark Mittelberg says, the common claim today is that belief in Jesus as a unique divine person arose long after he walked the earth. Such books as the Da Vinci Code have popularised the notion that it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea, three centuries after Jesus, that Christians started worshipping him as the divine son of God. Yet, as it turns out, the best historical scholarship shows that this is simply not the case. Uh, In my book, I spend quite a lot of time in one of the chapters looking at both the indirect and the direct evidence of Jesus' self-understanding. And let's start with the indirect evidence of what others who knew Jesus believed uh, about him, and then briefly touch on some of the direct evidence of his explicit and implicit claims about himself. D.L. Overman, in his book, The Case for the Divinity of Jesus, gives a quite nice summary of contemporary scholarship on this. Uh, about the indirect sources. He says, the earliest literary sources in our possession that we know for certain were written within decades of Jesus' death contained devotional creeds, hymns, liturgical formulae that pre-existed these literary sources and were then incorporated into them. So very early sources. They present, says Overman, compelling evidence of a pattern of worship of Jesus of Nazareth as a resurrected divine being, dating from a time almost contemporaneous with the events they describe. This means we have solid historical evidence that persons who were alive and presumably eyewitnesses to Jesus' life worshipped him as divine within an astonishingly short time of the crucifixion. And he goes on in a later passage to say, the devotional practices of the primitive church for which there's substantial evidence clearly demonstrate that Jesus was worshipped as divine right from the beginning of the Christian movement. This is nothing short of astounding, considering that the worship practice erupted in the context of a very exclusivist, monotheistic Jewish culture, that the early disciples did not see this worship as inconsistent with Judaism, but as the fulfilment of Jewish prophecy. Professor Craig Evans puts it this way in uh, The Jesus of History and the Christ of Faith. To assert that Jesus did not regard himself as in some sense God's son makes the historian wonder why others did. From the earliest time, Jesus was regarded by Christians as the son of God. 
Why not regard him as the great prophet, if that's all he claimed or accepted? Why not regard him as the great teacher, if that had been all that he'd ever pretended to be? Earliest Christianity regarded Jesus as Messiah and as Son of God, I think, because that's how the disciples understood him and how Jesus permitted them to understand him. As the agnostic philosopher Anthony O'Hare comments, we should remember that his first followers were pious Jews, to whom the claims being made would have seemed blasphemous had they not been given strong reason to believe them, and where better than from Jesus himself. This is a wall painting uh, from a house church uh, in modern-day Syria, dated to about 235 AD, so 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. And you see here um, a man pointing to a figure lying on a bed and uh, a figure carrying his bed. What biblical incident does this wall painting put you in mind of? Exactly. A particularly notable incident from the Gospels where uh, Mark's Gospel, the earliest of the four Gospels, for example, records that some friends of a paralyzed man brought their friend to Jesus and Jesus uh, healed him, but only having first said to the guy, Son, your sins are forgiven, which caused quite an uproar. Those sitting there thinking, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus says, you know, well, which is easier, guys, to say to someone, your sins are forgiven, or to say to a paralyzed man, get up, pick up your bed and walk, and then heals him, to give evidence of his divine authority to forgive sins. So here we have, a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea, a wall painting depicting a scene which we know is significant principally because it's one of those scenes where Jesus very explicitly claims a divine, a divine uh, prerogative. Uh, in Capernaum, there remained the octagonal remains of a 5th century church, which in the 1960s, archaeologists digging uh, discovered remains of a 4th century church underneath this 5th century church, and this 4th century church, they discovered, had been built around the remains of a first century house in Capernaum, which had been clearly used as a Christian meeting place since at least the second half of the first century. And scratched into the walls in this first century house, in the plaster, were prayers uh, mentioning the name of Jesus. Um, These inscriptions, which at least date from the 3rd fourth centuries include things such as Jesus Christ the Redeemer and Lord Jesus Christ help your servant Uh, it is this house that uh, Constantine's mother in AD 380 said was the house of Peter there's a church with its original walls still standing it's where the Lord cured the paralytic that we just had the wall painting from This is a particular favourite archaeological discovery of mine. This is the Christian prayer hall near Medigo, dated to about 230 AD, over 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. And you see here a recreation of the the hall with with its communion table in the middle. And this is a top-down view of the mosaic 
priests on the floor around the communion table. It's very interesting to note the fish symbols in this mosaic here. The fish, uh, ichthus in Greek, was an early Christian symbol we know from lots of other digs because uh, if you take the, the initial letters of the word, you get the acrostic uh, ichthus, Jesus Christ, God's son, saviour. But even more explicit, we have a little inscription from the lady who had uh, paid for the table in the middle of the room. The God-loving Akeptus has offered the table to God, Jesus Christ, as a memorial. And perhaps the earliest uh, archaeological find relating to people's views of Jesus from about AD 200, uh, the Alaxaminos Graffite. Uh, Alaxaminos worships his God, says the scree, with the guy standing in front of a crucified man with a donkey's head. What an ass he's made of himself, getting himself crucified, and what a stupid idiot my fellow Roman soldier is for worshipping this crucified man. So as John Rist, professor of classics, says, the full range of Christian claims must go back to the very earliest followers of Jesus, and therefore in all probability to Jesus himself. When you look at the direct understanding... I mean, we could go back to this story of Jesus' claim to have the authority to forgive sins. When he's on trial for his life, he really puts his foot very deliberately in it when they ask him, are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tears his clothes and says, why do we need any more witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. And they all condemn him as worthy of death, again from the earliest gospel. Jesus is very deliberately applying to himself the prophetic language of Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. This meant the typical Jewish imagery of the glory of God, the clouds of heaven. Um, to whom all peoples and nations would worship. And of course, you can only worship the divine. You can't even worship an angel in Judaism. You can only worship God and who has an everlasting dominion. And the Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite uh, designations for himself. And he says things, just a few quotes from Matthew's Gospel The Son of Man is the master even of the Sabbath. Who establishes the Sabbath within Jewish scriptures? God. Um, the Son of Man will send out his angels. Who owns angels? God. And they will uproot from the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, everything that's spoiling it. So, various quotes from people like William Lane Craig here. The majority of New Testament critics today agree that the historical Jesus deliberately stood and spoke in the place of God himself. Or N.T. Wright, Jesus believed himself called to do and be what in the scriptures only Israel's God did and was. Which leads us back to the lunatic liar lord argument. Um, I wouldn't treat this argument as a knockdown argument for the Christian view of Jesus. But I would say it's a significant part of the accumulation of evidence that points in the direction of the Christian understanding of Jesus. And certainly, given that Jesus really did have that kind of self-understanding, 
your options for, for explaining the guy are very limited. Either his claim was true, or it wasn't. And if it wasn't true, he either believed that it was true, even though it wasn't, or he didn't believe that it was true. He believed he was lying. And if he didn't know that he was wrong about this, if he was sincerely deluded about his very personhood, you can't get much more of a bigger gap between appearance and reality than thinking that you and mere human are Yahweh. Um, so it really does seem to boil down to these three options. And to the extent that you think the lunatic and the liar options really don't fit with all of the other information you think you have about Jesus. So to that extent, it pushes you towards the true Lord option of the trilemma. <sighs> I'll just finish with this quote from Richard Dawkins and uh, Nicky Gumbel, because I love them so much. I'm sure you've heard me say them before. But Dawkins' response to this lunatic liar lord argument, a fourth possibility, almost too obvious to need mentioning, is that Jesus was just honestly mistaken. Plenty of people are, you know. Sometimes I'm mistaken about why I left the house keys. You know, people make mistakes. Doesn't mean you're mad. But if you make a mistake about thinking that you're God when you're not, it's just a mistake, you know. The irony of the God delusion, says Nicky Gumbel, is that Dawkins says all Christians are deluded because they believe there is a God. But Jesus wasn't deluded even though he thought he was God. <laughs> yeah, pull the other one, Dawkins. Let me just close with this uh, quote from Jesus from um, Luke's Matthew. I have a chapter in my book called uh, Jesus' Self-Centered Teaching. In that his teaching wasn't just about you know, how to be nice to other people and how to behave towards God and so on. It was all focused on himself as this divine entry point into the kingdom of God. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock on the door. I am the, the gate and so on, will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receive. Those who seek, find. And to those who knock, the door will be open. No one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light who is a guy who says that kind of thing about himself and wants to play that kind of role at the heart of your spiritual life there's very limited options and you have to balance those options against the best evidence that we have I've seen the film, obviously, yeah. go back over it subsequently. It was very interesting, to my mind, the professor of philosophy from Oxford mm. put up, I so challenged the gospel picture of Jesus that he said there are lots of other gospels, mm. and he put up on the screen, what, did I count 50? Could yes, a whole list, he put up a PowerPoint mm. slide. of. Yeah, all that I could look at yeah. were second, third, or probably fourth century. Yeah. I think he's going to be embarrassed when that's published, mm. do you think? If they, if they go ahead and publish it, because he, he really did give the impression 
that, oh, well, Christians have, you know, later on in history, the church or Christians have sort of conspired to pick certain Gospels that reflect their view of, of Jesus after the fact and have arbitrarily excluded, for no good reason, other Gospels that may have different views of him. And that's just not true. <laughs> it's just not true. The four Gospels that are in the New Testament are the earliest and only first century Gospels. <laughs> the only Gospels to have a claim to be written by people who either knew Jesus or who knew people who knew Jesus. Full stop. <laughs> um, and then you're looking into things like the Gospel of Thomas, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Peter, and so on and so on. The Gospel of Thomas is probably the earliest of these so, so-called non-canonical Gnostic Gospels and so on. They come from a completely different uh, pagan philosophical background than the, than the Jewish milieu of the four Gospels. Um, mainstream uh, New Testament scholarship today, the renewed so-called quest for the historical Jesus is all about understanding Jesus in the Jewish context that he's in. Uh, rather than the sort of Greco-Roman sort of, or pagan context of the Gnostic Gospels. And the Gospel of Thomas, probably the earliest one, maybe as early as, say, 250 AD, something like that. Um, but it has no claim to be an eyewitness source or based on eyewitness sources. Or, you know, A few scholars think there might be some of the sayings, and it's not even a story, it's just lists of sayings, many of these, or, or supposed secret teachings of Jesus to... You know, a particular disciple or something, but they don't have the sort of narrative story structure of the, the four Gospels, and they're just very different. And the irony in the debate was that Bill Craig didn't spot it. Yeah. He, he, there was a huge PowerPoint screen, but it was pushed right to the side. Facing the audience. He couldn't easily see it, mm. and I watched him at the time, when it came up on the screen, he had his head down, was writing notes, yeah. and then the screen changed. It was only after I pushed it out to him, he missed this. Yeah. So, uh, but we're, getting, we're currently trying yeah. to get the PowerPoints to put into the film. Mm. So we hope to have this out next week. So you will be, at each point, the pictures will come up for everyone to see what's playing on the PowerPoint. Mm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, another def- def- definition question. It's <coughs> quite significant to the term son of man. So, yeah. Of man. Yeah. Okay, so we have these phrases, the son of God and the son of man. And to our ears, son of God sounds like a more elevated title, more divine, than son of man does. But actually, to the Jewish ear, it's the other way around. Um, so, are we not all sons of God? Does not God say to Israel, you, you know, you are my, my son, etc.? Um, we're all... You know, but, so, it, it, it had a range, a breadth of meanings... Um, some of which were not particularly kind of elevated. But son of man, and not just the general, we are sons of Adam, as C.S. Lewis might put it in the Narnia stories or whatever, but Jesus is saying, I am the son of man. The the particular, this uh, figure prophesied in the vision of Daniel chapter 7 in particular, who approaches the Ancient of Days and is given, is worshipped by all peoples and nations, given a kingdom, a kingdom that his dominion over it never ends, um, and so on. And then Jesus is always saying things like, you know, I, as the, the Son of Man will send his angels, 
He's sort of talking about himself in the third person here, but he's saying, I am the son of man who will send my angels um, to winnow out all evil from my kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Uh, uh, the son of man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. He says when, they, when the Pharisees accused Jesus' disciples of working on the Sabbath because they picked some corn as they were walking through a field and were rubbing it in their hands and having a bit of a, you know, ooh, you've broken the law, you're doing work, you're grinding corn on the Sabbath. We can get Jesus' disciples, they're not very good, are they? They're not very religious. Look at that. Jesus says, you know, the, the Son of Man is the Lord even of the Sabbath. There's lots here, um, just checking. Yeah. I've got this right from my memory. Um, with the coming in the clouds, which mm. he said in Mark's Gospel. And I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and presented before him. Uh, yeah. To him was given dominion and glory and yeah. kingdoms and nations and peoples. Mm. So the Son of Man title has, has much more elevated associations in the Jewish scripture background. So Jesus was deliberately referring to Daniel. Yeah. Is there any other passage that refers to this Daniel? Apart from in the New Testament. Um, Psalm 8. Yeah. What is man that you yeah, hear? The Son of Man that... Or Ezekiel describes himself as a son of man. It doesn't mean to Lord me bloke there. Yeah. yeah. Again, the again these, these, both phrases have a range of meaning, but it, it's the associations and the way in which Jesus uses the title against the Jewish scriptural background means that it's actually the more elevated self-designation. It's when he's saying, you know, I own the Sabbath, I own angels, I will come and judge the court of the, of the religious leaders with the glory of heaven sitting on God's judgment throne. I will receive worship, etc., etc. And these are all things that, to their mind, it was, it was obvious. Rent his clothes. You've heard it from his own mouth. Is he guilty? Yes, he's guilty of blasphemy. And of course he is, unless he's actually telling the truth. <laughs> yeah. Um, five ways to spiritual enlightenment. Yeah. So the lunatic liar lord argument is one of the five ways. Uh, and the others are um, Jesus' miracles in general, some of which are enacted claims to divinity that kind of sharpen the lunatic liar lord argument. But they also give independent evidence of, of sort of imperture of, of his status because he's working miracles by the power of God. Um, the, the resurrection, and then you could say, well, that's another one of the miracles, but it's a particularly significant one. So I have a chapter on the resurrection uh, as God's vindications on his claims, because he'd been crucified as a blasphemer for making those claims. And yet if this guy is the only guy who is raised from the dead to glory and immortality, that seems to vindicate the claims. His fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy uh, at very long odds um, seems to indicate... Again, the same kind of thing. And then contemporary religious experience centred on Jesus of various kinds. Um, so the fact that he transforms people's lives, um, has the you know, answered prayer, all those kind of things. So various different types of contemporary religious experience that again seems to, as you were, we were saying, you know, how do I know he lives? He lives within my heart. Um, so this is sort of cumulative case of five reasons that I think were the five reasons that Jesus and the disciples in the early church gave. Um, when you look into uh, the New Testament, these were the reasons that they gave for the, the Christian understanding of Christ.